and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. Amanda, I'm hanging ten. <laughs> Probably won't get that unless you listen to our Hee Haw Gang episode, or at least follow us on TikTok, because that, that makes more sense. Anyway, go follow us on TikTok if you want to understand the reference. <laughs> we, are, we are your hosts for this evening. And we're in silly, goofy moods. We are definitely in a very silly, goofy mood, which might not work as well for this case, but it's fine. Wait, we do have a shout out to do. Was it on America? Yes. So David M. Wynn or Wayne, <laughs> I, uh, I will accept your pun because you gave us a very lovely review. So no need to apologize for the pun. Thank you so much for your review. We really appreciate it. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. <laughs> And I haven't seen if there were any in the other countries because I have not been checking because I've been very busy this week with editing. We'll check <laughs> next week. Whatnot. So we'll check next week. Sorry if we haven't gotten to you yet. Promise we're not ignoring you purposefully. We're just busy. So today's case, you might have heard of it. I've, apparently there are a handful of other podcasts who have done this particular case. I was not aware of that when I chose to do this case, but it's fine. Because nobody's going to do it the way that we do it. Yeah. (laughs) So this one I actually heard about is that week that I went down to visit my sister in the beginning of August when we recorded our Hee Haw Gang episode. A couple days before that, Amanda and I went to New Orleans for a couple of days. And while we were there, we went on the Killers and Thrillers tour, which was really interesting. It took us around New Orleans, primarily the French Quarter area of New Orleans, and we got to see... A lot of places where grisly crimes have happened. And so I got a couple of case ideas that I stole from that tour. And this was one of them. So this one is the story of Zach Bowen and Addie Hall. And it is a very sad case, primarily because it's based mostly around untreated mental illness. And so it's very important to talk about, obviously. But just keep in mind that... I'm not going to necessarily insult Zach in all of this because he had a lot of issues. Like, yes, he did do all of this stuff, but he also was suffering as well. So on that happy note, Brittany, do you have anything to add before we get started? My eyebrow appointment is on Tuesday. Well, I I hope that that goes well. Thank you. I had to cancel it because of COVID. Oh, eh, that makes sense. I had to reschedule my chiropractor appointment for that same reason, because my mom tested positive. So I'm Are you in quarantine? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't tell me that! It's, it's fine. I mean, I, I work from home, so it really doesn't really change my life much. <laughs> anyway, I'm fine, so... It's fine. I'm fine. It, Everything's fine. It, it is what it is. <laughs> All right. So... This story obviously takes place in New Orleans. Before we get into all of the details, I do want to say that this happened a year after Hurricane Katrina, so keep that in mind going forward through this case. But we are going to start with some background first. I found more information on Zach than I did on Addie, so I'm probably going to have a little bit more to say about him because there's been a lot of people who have done research into his life, so that was primarily what I found. So we have Zachary Morgan Bowen. He went by Zach. He was born on May 15th in 1978 in Bakersfield, California. 
But basically, after he was born, like a couple months after he was born, his family kind of like started to live on the road and just kind of traveled all over the place. Goals. So, right? Like, I want to do that. He was the youngest of two sons, born to Loriana and Jack. Lori and Jack divorced in the early 1990s, and both boys lived with Lori in Santa Maria, California. Zach loved music, and he wanted to be a skater when he was younger. This was a quote from his mom. She said, quote, He went on to memorize every line from Wayne's World in junior high and tried so hard to become a skater, but he stunk at it, and he knew it. <laughs> Unquote. He was apparently 6'10", which is wild to me. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody who's been 6'10". That like, is very tall. I was about to say yeah. that's so short, but then I was like, wait, no, that's not correct. <laughs> that is the opposite of short. He also had like a size 17 shoe I saw, which is crazy. Like, you probably had to special order shoes all the time. But he dropped out his senior year of high school in early 1996, and he moved to live with his dad in Washington, which apparently was a weird decision for him to make because I guess they didn't really spend a whole lot of time with their father. Wait, Washington, Washington, D.C. or Washington State? Washington State, to my understanding. That's because he wanted to meet Edward from Twilight. (laughs) Uh, I guess we'll go with that. (laughs) (laughs) And so once he moved in with his dad in Washington, they ended up taking a cross-country road trip where they made a couple stops in various places for a few weeks at a time, but they made an extended stop in New Orleans, and that's where he kind of settled down after that. He eventually worked a few jobs on Bourbon Street. One of them was a bartender. That is where he met Lana Shupak. She was a 28-year-old stripper. What? Lana is such a pretty name. It is a very pretty name. But she was a 28-year-old stripper. I should probably mention at this time he was 18 years old. He had basically just turned 18, essentially. At least he's legal. Yeah, he's legal. But apparently, like she said that she didn't know of his age. Like she was a visitor in New Orleans at that time. So she didn't live in the area when they met. But she had assumed that he was at least 21 because he was bartending. But I mean, this is New Orleans. New Orleans makes its own rules, basically. (laughs) So they got together and they were doing things until she figured out that he was 18. And that's when she tried to kind of distance herself from him because she was just like, this is weird, <laughs> which is understandable. Fair. But she found out that she was pregnant in early 1997. Zach actually didn't really want to be a dad, but he stayed in New Orleans because he figured he should be there for the first couple of years of the kid's life, you know, just to kind of be there i guess to be a dad yeah but he didn't really want to like actively be there he just kind of wanted to like do the bare minimum for the first couple years and then he wanted to kind of split town you know all right so he had a son named jackson jackson was born in july of 1997 in new orleans and apparently lana didn't even tell zach that she was going into labor or about jackson being born until after the fact (laughs) because i guess at the time they were still basically kind of like distanced from each other they weren't actually together or anything but apparently once zach actually met jackson like his whole demeanor changed about being a dad like he was very invested and then about six weeks after jackson was born he and lana actually like officially got together they were married in october of 1998 and he had a daughter named lily who was born in june of 1999 i love the name lily it's a very cute name i love that name too I need some water. Water boy away, yeah. Okay. He was described 
before joining the military as having a wacky sense of humor. He was always smiling and had a kind heart. He was a sensitive soul, happy-go-lucky, gentle, and lighthearted. He enlisted in the Army, and he worked his way up to First Sergeant in the 709th Military Police Battalion. He served in Kosovo and in Iraq, and he apparently won several medals, including the NATO Medal and the Presidential Unit Citation. But I think things when he was overseas kind of like it started to wear on him. If I remember right, there were two incidences that were mentioned multiple times. One was that an Iraqi boy he had formed a connection with. He and his family had died in a, in a mortar attack or something like that. And then one of his, I guess, a friend or something he had made who was also overseas but in Afghanistan died or something along those lines. So basically war started to take its toll. Yeah. So in the fall of 2004, I saw he purposefully failed a health and fitness test so that he could go back home to his family. Because at the time, Lana was diagnosed with hep C and was very sick. So he was actually recommended for an honorable discharge by his commanding officer, but was only generally discharged which meant that he lost his health benefits from the VA and he couldn't get educational benefits either. That sucks. Yeah. It's like, I have a lot to say about that, but we've got a lot to cover. So (laughs) because of all the stuff he went through during the war, it, it really took its toll. And he and Lana started to have some marital issues. And so they separated shortly after Zach returned to New Orleans in early 2005. He was clearly suffering from symptoms of PTSD that went untreated or undiagnosed. It's like mood swings, nightmares, flashbacks, and feelings of stress and anger. His older brother, Jed, was quoted as saying, quote, When Zach came home, he just wasn't the same. He was never enthusiastic or energetic. He didn't like to talk much and everything was blah, unquote. Zach worked as a bartender and he delivered groceries for a local grocery store. And he was 28 at the time that all of this happened. Then we have Adrian Matthias Hall, or Addie, as you'll hear me refer to her as, because that was her nickname. She was born on January 15th, 1976. I saw that her hometown was Durham, North Carolina, but a lot of people said that she lived in the Northeast, so I don't know generally like where she was born. So I just wrote her hometown was Durham, North Carolina, so we're going to go with that. (laughs) (laughs) She was described as free-spirited, independent. She had a feisty temper. She had a dark sense of humor. She was creative. Period. She was was an artist. She wrote poetry. She also was a dancer. And I saw in a couple places that she taught classes. I don't know if that's actually true or not. And then for her job, she worked as a bartender as well at a different place called The Spotted Cat. I love that. The Spotted (laughs) Cat. Yeah, that's a really cute name. She rode her bike everywhere as her main form of transportation. And apparently growing up, she was in a toxic and abusive household. She had suffered sexual abuse from a young age. And then as she got older, she was in several abusive relationships as well, which tends to happen with people who experience abuse at a very young age. So she was very wary of relationships with men in particular because of the abuse she had experienced. But when she met Zach, all of that kind of fell by the wayside in a sense it's likely that she also suffered from ptsd due to those traumas from her life but i saw in multiple places that she suffered from bipolar disorder and she irregularly took her medication to treat it which meant that 
she would have uncontrolled or violent outbursts because she wasn't taking her medication consistently. Yeah. Friends of hers also said that she could be a mean drunk and she tended to drink very often. Oh. She was 30 at the time that this happened. And like I said, this is not everything, all there is to know about Addie Hall, but this is all I could find. Most of the information out there was about Zach. So if you have any further information that I might not have for whatever reason, please feel free to let me know. So more about their relationship and how they met. They met in the summer of 2005, and it was a whirlwind romance. She apparently liked to tease him as a means of flirting. I think I saw that that was kind of like her way to see if he could handle her and her behavior. But he basically fell head over heels for her. They would exchange love notes and visit each other at work. They both had a fondness for the nightlife, partying, drugs, and drinking, and they wanted to live life to the fullest. That's my good. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff that is fine in moderation. Mm-hmm. A few weeks after they met, Hurricane Katrina was making its way towards New Orleans. God, and Hurricane Ida just hit. Yeah, so it's very, very timely. Initially, Zach intended to evacuate with Lana and the kids, which understandably so like it's his family even if even if they were separated at the time like that's still his family lana had even invited addy to come along but addy wanted to actually stay in the city what a good person rather than evacuate zach ended up staying with addy and they stayed in new orleans to wait out the storm together in addy's apartment on governor nichols street so For those who've never actually been to New Orleans, when I went, that was my very first time. So I kind of learned about this as well when I was down there. But the French Quarter portion of New Orleans, which is the part that you're more likely to see in media because it's like the downtown area, sort of. That portion of New Orleans is above sea level. And so it was mostly unscathed in the hurricane, like with the floods and all that. It wasn't hit as badly as other parts of the city. Uh And so... Because of that, basically, they had no electricity for a couple of weeks. But other than that, for the most part, they were fine. So a quote from a friend said, quote, They liked the lifestyle we had during the hurricane. They liked camping out. They liked not having to work. They liked not having the responsibility of paying bills. They didn't like the change back to normalcy. Okay, well, um, nobody (laughs) else does, so. You're right. But they were photographed by plenty of national news organizations and magazines for their decision to stay in New Orleans because most people evacuated. So one of the articles that I read, I believe this was in the New York Times where they were featured. It said, quote, some holdouts seem intent on keeping alive the distinct and wild spirit of this city. In the French Quarter, Addie Hall and Zachary Bowen found an unusual way to make sure that police officers regularly patrolled their house. Miss Hall, 28, a bartender, flashed her breasts at the police vehicles that passed by, ensuring a regular flow of traffic. Unquote. So, they were having fun with it. They would cook dinners over campfires with other people who had waited out the storm in the city. They admired the stars that they could see now without light pollution. They made cocktails for random visitors because they were both bartenders. People described them as the king and queen of the Hurricane Katrina survivalists. Um, that's a little, but, little odd. Yeah, a little bit. Similar to what that quote earlier from their friend said, once the lights came back on and the city started to clean up, the honeymoon phase was over, so to speak, because neither of them really was ready to face real-world responsibilities again, and then the relationship quickly became toxic after that. 
She taught art classes? I think it was dance classes. Okay. Is what I saw. Oh, and I also saw that she was a seamstress, but I only saw that in like two places, so I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. But allegedly, Zach no longer wanted the responsibility of being a father. Like, he didn't want to play child support, all that kind of stuff. You don't really get a choice, so... Yeah, it's like, you've got kids, you gotta deal with it. And then Addie, she didn't necessarily want Zach's life and the baggage that came with it. She just wanted to be with him. So obviously, that's a very bad combination right there. Yeah. So... There was drug and alcohol abuse on both sides. I know that they had a friend who regularly supplied them with cocaine because he was a drug dealer. <laughs> oh, okay. So. <laughs> Love that. They would fight a lot to the point where Addie would kick Zach out of the apartment, but they would constantly break up and get back together, you know, basic toxic relationship type stuff. Many who knew Zach said that he talked negatively about Addie, but he still stayed in the relationship. Oh. So. Okay. Yeah. So it's like very classic toxic relationship stuff with that. In September of 2006, they had been evicted from Addie's apartment and they ended up moving into one at 826 North Rampart Street above the New Orleans Voodoo Spiritual Temple. So on October 4th, Addie went to the landlord and requested to have the lease put in her name and to remove Zach's so that she could legally remove him from the apartment. Because allegedly, she had discovered that he'd been cheating on her and decided to end the relationship. As she should. Good girl. I don't know if that's actually, like, 100% true, you know, because, like, that's just what I saw. So, basically, the landlord, instead of actually doing that, suggested that they try to work things out and then get back to him with whatever decision they made because... I guess she didn't seem like she was afraid for her life or anything like that. Like, it wasn't, like, a desperate situation. So he's like, oh, it's just another one of their arguments, you know? Like, well, you, you guys work it out and then yeah. come back and talk to me. Well, I used to work for an apartment complex. And at least with this company, we couldn't mm -hmm. remove... Like, once the lease was signed, we couldn't remove them off the lease. Like, even yeah. even if they had a court order. I mean, we could change mm -hmm. the locks, but we, can't, yeah. we couldn't take their names off. So, I mean, I can... Yeah. I, at least with that company. I don't know if that's like that for everybody, but... It, it probably is similar. Because it's a legally binding contract. Yeah. Because, like, when I moved out of my apartment, I, did, I had to find somebody to cover my... Like, they were basically subletting. Like, they had to cover my portion of the lease. But mm -hmm. I think my name was still on it. We didn't allow subleasing, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but basically... That's what the landlord suggested, but he never heard back from them, so he just assumed that they made up. So, this is where things get dark. So, a couple weeks later, on October 17th, 2006, Zach had basically been on, like, a nearly two-week bender by this point. Like, he'd like been going out drinking, uh, uh, drugs, partying. He apparently hired strippers and all this kind of stuff so he was basically just doing the most and I lana saw, wasn't so stripping anymore right or was she still a stripper to my knowledge she wasn't anymore well even if she was you know that's yeah. her business you're right so at some point during this two weeks he mentioned to friends that Addie had moved out of their apartment one of their friends, his name was Greg Rogers, but his nickname was Squirrel. What? <laughs> so how does that correlate? So there was a book that was written about this case. I think I have it listed in the sources. But apparently he was a roadie. And so 
like he was used to like climbing light poles or whatever and he did it very quickly and so people nicknamed him squirrel or something like that because of that i was like Wait, okay whatever a roadie's whatever not floats a, your boat a roadie's not a carnival though or is that a rodeo that's a rodeo i mean like he was working with bands and so he was like a tour roadie basically oh. he did he, he did those <laughs> kind of things <laughs> love that for him so, so squirrel he recalls him saying that Addie tried to rip him off for a bunch of money before she left town and went back home to North Carolina yeah because it's not what capitalism does it's what it can do for you (laughs) so basically Zach woke up squirrel around 4 p.m. on the 17th and he tried to get him to go out partying with him and the reason that squirrel was still sleeping at 4 p.m. was because he had apparently been out until sunrise the night before or earlier that day and was sleeping off a hangover so i figured i would put that out there because i'm sure somebody's like why is he sleeping at 4 p.m i mean he's a mind your business <laughs> mind your business so squirrel decided not to go with him but zach took some coke from squirrel stash because squirrel was the drug dealer friend <gasps> oh. and made his way to the omni royal orleans hotel i'm gonna say that again because that sounded weird <laughs> the omni royal orleans hotel He went up to the seventh floor of the hotel and out to the observation deck where there was like a rooftop pool and bar situation. There was like a band playing or something like that or getting ready to play. And so this was like right around 4 p.m. He began drinking for the next couple of hours. And so just before 8.30, Zach began pacing back and forth between the roof railing and the pool. And then according to security footage at 8.30 sharp, Zach leapt over the side of the railing and fell five stories down onto the roof of the hotel's parking garage where he died instantly. So a guest saw Zach's body sprawled out on the parking garage roof and called 911. And some officers who were only a few blocks away about to have dinner made their way to the scene. So an investigator from the coroner's office was searching the body and they found a Ziploc bag in Zach's right front pocket containing army dog tags and a tightly folded sheet of notebook paper that read for police only on the outside fold, which turned out to be a suicide note. And we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. So I think this was the entirety of the suicide note i could be wrong but this was the majority of sources said that this was what it said so quote this is not accidental i had to take my own life to pay for the one i took if you send a patrol to 829 north rampart you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend Addie in the oven on the stove and in the fridge along with full documentation on the both of us and a full signed confession from myself the keys in my right front pocket are for the gates. Call Leo Watermeyer to let you in. Zach Bowen, unquote. So, as you can imagine, that's a little, like, rough. Disconcerting. <laughs> I think I saw in one of the articles I read or something that the police thought that this, the guy who read the suicide note was playing a dark prank on them. He's like, no, this is literally what it says. What kind of prank? <laughs> yeah, right. 
So Zach's body was covered in cigarette burns, but overall the visible damage to the body was minimal. Like he did it himself? Yeah. According to Detective Tom Morovich. So in the note, I guess, it mentioned, maybe not in that note, but in something that they find later, said that he had burned himself 28 times, quote, one for each year of my existence, unquote, for failing at school, jobs, the military, marriage, parenthood, morals, and love. So... It was kind of a theme for him, even when he was younger, that he took failure really, really hard. So I think that kind of played into this. It's like every single decision he made, he kind of chalked it up to him being a failure totally, if that makes sense. It's rough. So just after 10 p.m., officers arrived at Leo Watermeyer's place at 812 North Rampart. They searched his apartment because they, I guess, forgot that it wasn't the apartment that he mentioned that he lived at, but this is his landlord. So anyway, they searched the landlord's apartment and then he leads them down to 826 North Rampart, which is the apartment that Zach and Addie were renting from him. So the apartment was described as a gruesome and inexplicable crime scene. There were beer cans full of stubbed out cigarettes littered all over the floor. There were unopened moving boxes that sat near the door, because if you remember, they had basically just moved in at the beginning of October, so this was just a couple of weeks ago. On the walls, Zach had spray-painted various messages, ones that said, please call my wife, along with her phone number, I love her, I'm a total failure, look in the oven, and then on the ceiling above their bed said, please help me stop the pain. He sounds like he's having a psychotic break. Exactly. Like, when I read all of this, like, it was very much, like, untreated mental illness. Like, that was, all of this could have been avoided if they had gotten help for their separate mental health issues. Sounds like he has schizophrenia. I mean, it's very possible. Like, we know at least he has PTSD. Like, that, for sure, he has PTSD. And then... He might, well, it sounds like he, he was in, when he was going on his bingers, it sounded like he was manic. Yeah. And he could have, I mean, it kind of sounds like he has, like, severe bipolar depression because he was having the manic phase and then it went to very, like, the depression yeah. phase. And it's like, when it hit, it hit hard. So it's entirely possible because, I mean, like I said, this, like, no person who is completely mentally healthy would do this. <laughs> Like, yeah. I think that's obvious. There was an arrow that was spray painted on the range pointing down towards the oven. And inside the oven were Addie's legs, which had been stuffed into a tinfoil turkey pan. On the stove were multiple pots. One of them had Addie's head in it. And then the other one had hands and feet inside. Inside the fridge was Addie's torso that had been packed into a black garbage bag. So detectives found Addie's journal and inside the last entries were actually written by Zach. He had written out about eight pages on what he did, basically, and how things played out. So on October 5th, 2006, which is the day after Addie had gone to talk to the landlord and ask for them to remove Zach's name from the lease, the two of them had gotten into an argument. And so I think it was like very, very early in the morning on the 5th. So it was like... The 4th into the 5th. And he died what day? He died on the 17th of October. Okay. How did this not stink? It did. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he, he he did things to try and mitigate it. So I I don't know. 
anyway, they had gotten into an argument and then he strangled her while she was in the bathtub. And I saw this in a few places, but I don't know if this was just like a rumor that people put out there to sensationalize it. Allegedly, he slept with her corpse multiple times and then he passed out drunk next to her body. He dismembered her body in the bathtub using a hacksaw and a knife. And it took him about four days to kind of figure out what to do with the body. There was evidence that he had tried to clean up the bathroom. I saw that he had decided to cook the remains, mainly to cook the meat off the bones to presumably make it easier to dispose of them. He had turned the temperature in the apartment down to 60 degrees and had the AC running full blast to kind of preserve the remains. Because the cooler it is, the slower decomposition happens. Mm-hmm. So police police said that when they walked in, it had the feel of a meat locker, essentially. Ooh. So the note that was in Addie's journal, I found two excerpts from it. So the first, it starts off with, quote, Today is Monday, 16th October, 2 a.m. I killed her at 1 a.m., Thursday, the 5th of October. I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick, unquote. And then the next one was, quote, halfway through the task, I stopped and thought about what I was doing. I'm assuming that's because he was in the middle of, Mm -hmm. like, cooking her remains or something like that. Mm -hmm. The decision to halt the first idea and move to plan B, and then in parentheses, the crime scene you are now in, came after a while. I scared myself not by the action of calmly strangling the woman I've loved for one and a half years and then desecrating her body, but by my entire lack of remorse. I've known for forever how horrible of a person I am, ask anyone, and decided to quit my jobs and spend the $1,500 cash I had being happy until I killed myself. So that's what I did. Good food, good drugs, good strippers, good friends, and any loose ends I may have had. I didn't contact any of my family, so that'll explain the shock, and had a fantastic time living out my days. It's just about time now, unquote. So when they called Lana, she was clearly shocked because, like he said in his note, he hadn't told anybody that he was planning to kill himself. A lot of friends who had seen him in the days leading up to him jumping off the roof, they said that he was kind of acting fine. Like, there was some strange behavior, but for the most part, he was himself. He was happy and kind of just, like I mentioned, going out on that bender for those two weeks. He was just kind of doing his thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So, because of the state that they found Addie's body in, there were rumors that cannibalism was involved. I was about to ask, did he eat her? So, there are rumors out there. So, if you do research, you will see people saying that he had eaten parts of her. But the autopsy report didn't show any evidence of body parts in Zach's stomach. Yeah, there's rumors that went around about that. But I, like like I said, I believe that he was cooking it to get the meat off the bones and make it easier to dispose of them. I don't think he was actually planning on eating her. Because some people say that there were, like, bites taken out of the leg or something like that. But if there was, like, there would be evidence of that, like, in his system, yeah. you know? So the other one that was... Like, another rumor was that the legs that were in the oven had been cooked and that there was necrophilia involved. And like I said, that was another popular rumor. But Chief Joseph, uh, I don't know how to say that, Quagusback? Yeah, Quagusback. (laughs) (laughs) It's not funny. It's uh, It's just how you're saying it. 
It's, I mean, I don't know how to say it. That's what I'm I saying. know. It's just how you're saying it. That's funny. He denies that the legs had been cooked or that there was necrophilia involved because there was no evidence of that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, this one is mainly tough because, like I said, it could have been avoided if they had just gotten the help that they needed, you know? Like, he was clearly, they clearly had a toxic relationship. So if they had broken up, they had finally left each other at some point, I think that they would have eventually been able to find happiness. I think it was really clear, like, they both were struggling. Yeah. But it's also, like, early, not early 2000s, but, like, yeah. It's, mental mental health was still like even then it was still yeah. taboo and then it was just the fact that it was like also right in the aftermath like it happened a little over a year after hurricane katrina had happened mm-hmm. so the whole town like the whole city of new orleans was going through a traumatic like a collective traumatic experience Mm -hmm. and i think the fact that they also met shortly before then and then Mm -hmm. basically like their relationship kind of blossomed during the during the aftermath of the hurricane they trauma bonded well and they also like the city and the family couldn't focus on two people because they're dealing with the aftermath of a hurricane that has destroyed the entire city yeah and I think, too, it's just, like, they trauma bonded during that time mm-hmm. where they, like, I don't know. It it seemed like for them, having those couple weeks after the hurricane where they didn't have electricity and they were just kind of living life as, like, I don't know, like, a basically a big camping trip. Like, they thrived in that environment, but that's because they didn't have to worry about anything, you know, and nobody can actually live under those circumstances unless they have like a ton of money and they don't need to work, you know? Yeah. So it's like, I think that was kind of their main downfall was just that they came together under certain circumstances and those circumstances were not circumstances that could last a long time. I hope Lana's doing okay. Yeah, I couldn't find a whole lot of information on Lana. She probably just wants to, like, live her life. Probably. Same with the kids. Like, the kids, they're probably... I'm pretty sure they're all grown up by this point. So, like, I can imagine that they want to distance themselves as much as they can from this. Mm -hmm. So, some of the aftermath of this case. I did mention that there have been some podcasts that have done episodes on this. But there have also been plenty of articles there's also a documentary called Zach and Addie, which was, I think they show it locally, but they've also showed it at international film festivals. And it's won a bunch of awards and honors from those. Ghost and True Crime Tours in New Orleans talk about this case, which is how I first heard about it. Like I mentioned at the beginning, the house is still there. We didn't go to the house or like go into the house or anything like that. We were outside the Omni Royal Hotel when our tour guide told us about this one. So the people still live in the house? No. Oh, okay, good. So it's haunted, probably. I wouldn't doubt it. Nobody lives in the house, but the Voodoo Spiritual Temple that was beneath their apartment moved out in 2016. And then the whole building was bought by her name is where did I write it down? Mary Milan. And she turned it basically into a museum and tourist attraction called Bloody Mary's Haunted Museum and Tour Company. So in the apartment, like, because of these tours, they're able to go up into the apartment. 
So people are able to see the fridge and stove where Addie's remains were found and the bathtub's obviously still there. None of it is like still covered in blood or anything well, like I'd that. Hope like, not. It, it, it had been cleaned up by that point, but they apparently decorated the apartment with fake blood splatter and bride and groom Chucky dolls to kind of like give it like a horror movie I guess, feel for the people who are going on these tours, which is very tacky. I was about to say, that's very tasteless. Yeah. And a lot of people have criticized that because they feel like it's exploitative and because like this only happened in 2006. So it's not even it's. Well, she didn't ask to be murdered. Yeah, it's it was it was 15 years ago. So it's like. That's it's tasteless. That yeah. is not mm. like it's still a relatively recent and raw tragedy, and they still have friends and family who live in the area. Well, so he the has fact still that, has kids that are yeah, still there. Exactly. So it's like it was very tasteless and all that. And so the company's owner says that she tries to focus on the mental health aspect of the crime in the by tours. putting a bride of Chucky and Chucky doll. Well, well, that's the thing is I don't believe her at all because then she insists that any of the critics that like complain about that stuff she insists that their critics are from competitor companies who are jealous one of the quotes that i found from her in an article said quote it'd be stupid to pretend they weren't here people are jealous they didn't do it first unquote uh no i think they're just that's a senseless thing to do yeah because i mean if you want to focus i mean it's Listen, it's one thing to take the house where a tragedy happened, showed where it happened, but that's, mm-hmm. to me, it's, I would go, I would like to see it, if you're treating it as, like, a museum type of thing. Yeah. Because it's kind of like the Diary of Anne Frank, where you have the Anne Frank house, you can go to the place where she spent her years, like, hiding in isolation, like, it's become a museum, but it's a place of reverence, in a sense, it's and not- honoring the victim. Yeah. Exactly. It's not trying to use that as a means of profit. I was going to say, she sounds like she's trying to exploit the fact that somebody was violently murdered. Yeah. And in a sense, you could kind of also say that a lot of the ghost tours and the true crime tours and whatnot that happen in the city are also doing the same thing. But I... The one I took, at least, the our tour guide, Michael, he was very respectful I was of about the to, victims. I was about to say, this still happened. This is like, it's like we're talking about the case. I feel like a tour guide is just showing you the places that did happen while talking about it. Yeah, exactly. So I just, I disagree. Yeah. So another thing that happened is that in a documentary about the case, I don't know if it was the Zach and Addie one or if it was a different one. I couldn't find any information it just said in a documentary about them one of Addie's friends named margaret sanchez was interviewed and she was obviously visibly upset and she was crying and all that mm-hmm. about this case and how Addie was murdered but then in 2012 she became involved with someone named terry speaks and on june 6 2012 the pair ended up abducting 22 year old jaron lockhart who is a dancer at temptations gentlemen's club and a young mother under the guise of a private performance at their home. Basically, they're like, we'll pay you if you come to our place and do a private dance for us. And so, obviously, as a young mother, she's going to try to get more money, you know, for her I respect the kid. coin. I respect the hustle. But please, guys, don't do that. That's, yeah, that's, that's not victim blaming. But, like, as a life no. lesson, please don't do that. Yeah, like, you never, as John Mulaney says, never let them take you to a secondary location. So, once they got her there they stabbed her in the chest then they ended up dismembering her and they threw her body 
basically over a bridge into the river. I don't know. I genuinely don't know. I don't know why they did this. But then the next day, pieces of Jaren's body began washing up on the shore along the Mississippi Gulf Coast because obviously currents are going to bring stuff back, you know, unless you drop it in like a strategic place. Yeah. And so she ended up pleading guilty to manslaughter, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy to obstruct justice on June 20th, 2016, and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. So she got 40 years for the manslaughter and obstruction charges, and then 20 years for conspiracy charge, which are served concurrently and not consecutively. So that's why she only got 40 years. So it's like she's serving those years all at the same time and not like one after another, if that makes sense. And then Terry Speaks was found guilty of second degree murder, obstruction of justice and conspiracy to commit obstruction of justice in June of 2015. And he was sentenced to life in prison because he actually went to court, whereas she pled guilty. Mm. So one thing that was that really bothered me about that was the fact that like her friend Addie died in a very similar way where she was murdered and then dismembered. And then she went and did it to somebody else. There was a quote that I found from her talking about this basically i guess this was after the fact and maybe the reason why she ended up pleading guilty instead of going to trial she said quote i felt so bad for her family because i had a friend my friend was addie hall she was cut up and was cooked and her boyfriend jumped off a hotel unquote and it's like if you felt bad then why did you do it like Mm, i have questions yeah you and me both I just I thought that was that was weird because it's like you clearly were upset by the fact that this happened to Addie, but then you went and did it to somebody else. So how upset were you really? Yeah, like, like were you really upset though? Or yeah, finally, I guess so to speak. Addie is buried at Gateway Baptist Church in Timberlake, North Carolina. So she was brought back home, Aww. and then to top this all off. Like I mentioned, this story, I wanted to heavily focus on the mental health aspect because yeah, basically what I got from all from this entire case was that they both had their issues and they ended up butting heads because of that. And then this is what this was the result of it, basically. Yeah. And obviously not every single relationship where people butt heads or are in toxic situations is going to end up in a murder-suicide, but you should never leave yourself in a situation like that. Yeah. Regardless. Because Zach was a veteran, I just wanted to put this hotline out there, but basically if you or any loved ones need help, there is the Veterans Crisis Hotline. It's available 24-7 by dialing one 800 273 8255 and pressing the number one so please don't try to do this on your own there are resources out there i know it's tough because mental health services can seem like they're out of reach for a lot of people either because of finances or insurance reasons but there are resources out there i know that nowadays they have like online therapists where there are chats or things like that or there's the suicide hotline you can i think there's also like a suicide like text line as well for those who are uncomfortable calling on the phone but like there there are things out there that can help you at least nowadays so mental health is a it's an area where i'm very 
I'm very passionate about it because I majored in psychology. I ended up specializing in forensic and criminal psychology, but psychology has always been kind of like my wheelhouse. So mental health and being an advocate for getting help and not being apologetic about getting help is kind of where I focus a lot of my attention. So yes, get help. Don't feel ashamed of getting help because everybody needs help once in a while, you know? It's not it's not a bad thing if you need to ask for help. And if you're lucky, your trauma may, will make you funny. <laughs> yes, there's also that. It makes me funny. Yes, there is also that. Yeah, my my sister is insistent that we need to some point explain what happened to you, but only if you feel comfortable with it. <laughs> maybe. Maybe once we get 100 subscribers we're, we're on YouTube. There. We're almost there. I will explain. There. I will do a mini episode about my case. Or we yes. could do a full episode on how my life is crazy. <laughs> now the, Starting from birth. And how the Spartanburg PD has royally messed everything up. <laughs> It'd be like that sometimes. It'd be like that. So... How, how do you feel about that case, Britt? That was rough. Yeah. Like, Tired of these rough, rough cases. It's it's rough in a different way than the other cases have been rough. It's rough like, because it's mental health. But it's true. It's like... Yeah, it's, it's sad. Yeah. Because it's... Like I mentioned at the beginning, like, I understand Zach did do this. He acknowledges he did this. He punished himself by burning himself and also committing suicide. But he had his issues, too. Well, I think it's it's rough, too, because Hurricane Katrina hit, and like I said earlier, Hurricane Ida just hit. Yeah. So, New Orleans is going... It's it's going through. Yeah, it's going through those same, like, very similar circumstances that that happened at this time. So, guys, if you're feeling inclined, please donate to the Red Cross for the Hurricane... Ida relief, or you can probably find local area or local situations in Louisiana as well. New Orleans was definitely hit, but I think there was also a lot of places outside of New Orleans that aren't getting as much attention. So, just wherever you're able to find local organizations that can help with relief, or even just like food, like donations and things like that, just if you're able to, please do because. We got to help each other sometimes. So if you guys want to go through the American Red Cross to donate, the telephone number for that is 1-800-435-7669. I know they have a Hurricane Ida-like relief center right now, but I'm sure you could go to your local like food drives. They're probably mm-hmm. accepting donations, even if it's just a can of beans anything to help them right now because i think the whole city as of right now is still without power yeah and i have family down in the louisiana area and thankfully they were unharmed but i can't say that's the same for everybody everybody in the state so not everybody's able to leave i mean some people have to hunker down and hope for the best like people people who don't have the funds to do so people whose you know livelihood is there like they have farms yeah they can't like take all of their animals with them people who have you know a lot of children or just one or two children a lot a lot of people cannot leave so if you're able to help with it whether it be money whether it be bringing food buy a food drive please do that we gotta we gotta the human race we gotta stick together guys yeah 
So all that to say, thank you guys for tuning in. I know that this one's a little sadder. We're ending on a sad note, but hey, we we can we do what we can. There's resources out there for us to get help, to help others, and we need to do what we can to help others along. So we are on social media. We are on Instagram at Shockingly Wicked Podcast. We are on Twitter. I was like, where else are we? We are on Twitter at Wicked Podcast One. We are on TikTok at Shockingly Wicked. We are on Facebook as a Facebook group. Just search up Shockingly Wicked Podcast and we'll pop right up. It's a private group. Just go ahead and hit join group and it should automatically accept you unless there's something suspicious that Facebook thinks that you might do, I guess, because occasionally we get a notification that's like, hey, so-and-so wants to join the group. And it's like, okay. We're going to bet you and then we'll accept you. No, I'm just kidding. We'll just no. accept you. Yeah, we'll just accept you. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to police anything. I don't um, care. And then we are also on YouTube, and we are so close to getting a URL. I believe I saw we were at like 73. So we're very close. So just keep going over there. Keep hitting subscribe so that we can get a URL. It's easier to tell you how to find us. But for right now, you can either find... We have a video of each of our episodes every Mm -hmm. week in our Instagram bio link. But you can also just go to YouTube, search up Shockingly Wicked Podcast, and we should pop up. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you guys have case suggestions email them to us at shockinglywickedpodcast at gmail.com we also now have individual email addresses so you can email either brianna at shockinglywickedpodcast.com or Brittany at shockinglywickedpodcast.com but for any general question concern comment suggestion just go to the gmail account because that would be much easier anything else we need to add Brittany? I think our last episode for this season will release on Halloween, right? Yes, that is correct. So, but we'll pick up... I will tell you guys because I know. Hold on. <laughs> so it's gonna se- be... season two will start January 4th. Assuming that everything goes according to plan, which yes. it should. But we if are looking... Yes, we are looking to start back up with season two on January 4th. So you guys can enjoy your holidays with your family and friends, talk true crime, catch up on episodes that you might have missed, get your daily dose of true crime and dark humor because we have a lot of that. So mm-hmm. thank you, you guys can't. for tuning in. <laughs> we can't see that. I'm so sorry. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Also, if you have suggestions for Patreon tier ideas like what to go into each tier feel free to email those to us maybe send those more to Brittany because she's working on that i'm working on the website you know Mm -hmm. work smarter not harder Mm -hmm. (laughs) so yes that is everything thank you guys for tuning in we'll see you next time bye bye